You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. In this episode, we have two exceptionally global segments from our staff. First, we'll go to Germany. Falling Walls is a conference and platform for emerging leaders in science, business, politics, arts, and society. It is based in Germany and, indeed, coincides with the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Since the MIT Germany program is a part of the efforts to run the conference later this fall, we thought it'd be a good idea to share what Falling Walls is about, especially if you're from outside Germany or are not too familiar with what they do. Dr. Shuwana Tabusum is a scientist and named an emerging talent by Falling Walls. Why? Because she is making waves in, quote, neonatal health disparities. Her work made her a finalist at the World Science Summit in 2020. MIT Germany Managing Director Justin Leahy spoke with Dr. Tabusum about her award-winning work and participation in the Falling Walls competition. Take a listen. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Could you just tell us your name, your position, and your background? Sure. Uh, my name is Shawana Tabassum. I'm an assistant professor of electrical engineering at the University of Texas at Tyler. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Falling Walls Lab competition is and what motivated you to participate last year? Yeah, so uh, as far as I understood, so I will talk about my uh, whatever I understand about Falling Walls Lab. Uh, so falling walls is really about breaking walls and barriers. There are like so many challenges all over the world, so many walls that we, as a researcher, need to break down in order to, for the humanity to survive and also for the uh, greater societal benefit. That's what I understand from falling walls, about breaking the walls and barriers, which uh, are there everywhere through, in the world, even uh, near to us as well to recognize these barriers, to be able to recognize these barriers, and then uh, to be really motivated to break down those walls. And what motivated you to apply for this program, this competition? Yeah, so it's really personal, uh, I would say, uh, because uh, that was a time uh, when, uh, just like one year before I learned about falling walls, my son was born, and that was the time really I was get motivated uh, to do this kind of research like research for humanity to save lives. And when I got to know about falling walls, that is an opportunity to break walls, uh, for instance, breaking the walls of health disparity and all. That's what uh, really motivated me to spread my words and to spread my research uh, to others, to get connected to um, people in rural community, people who work for rural communities or low resource setting areas so that I can get connected to them. And in the later, we can collaborate and really to uh, bring something uh, from our collaboration uh, for the uh, rural communities or low resource setting uh, areas. Great. And what was the project that you pitched or the idea that you pitched? Yeah, so what I pitched in Falling Walls Lab was a device that I have been developing. So it's a biosensor device. Uh, So using one device, we can detect different diseases. So for instance, using one device, we can detect hypoglycemia in neonates and also sepsis in neonates, which is a life-threatening condition, especially for rural communities because they cannot really afford uh, modern healthcare. So the idea of the device is really to be fast enough so that in minutes we can detect the 
disease conditions, how far they have been progressing, and also definitely cost effectiveness because we are really, uh, I'm highly motivated to uh, bring down the cost of this device so that this device can be accessible to all kinds of people, no matter where they're coming from, especially for the neonates. Uh, it's very easy to use, just plug and play uh, so that anyone can use it. Uh, we don't need any healthcare professional to do that. And also it's uh, it can reach anywhere, um, in the especially in the rural and remote areas in the war zones, which do not have really any facilities. Uh, for healthcare. So that is the device that I pitched in Falling Walls. And I have been still working on it. Excellent. Well, congratulations on winning the Falling Walls Lab Boston competition. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how is the participating and winning in the competition has helped you? Yeah, uh, so participating in the competition was really rewarding uh, because I got to know so many other bright minds uh, all over the globe. I made some really good connections, uh, not only with the peers, but also with um, policymakers and all. Uh, so that was really, really good. And also from my personal experience, I would say that it brought me closer to my roots, to the place where I belong, my own country, Bangladesh, because that's when I really got to like learn more about what are all the challenges in my own country uh, so that I can really work toward that. Uh, so that was really rewarding experience. Did you make some connections through the Falling Walls Lab that you're still utilizing today? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I made one connection with one researcher. Uh, uh, so he was, he's not really on the healthcare side. Mostly he does agriculture related stuff uh, because later on we figured out that this kind of devices are applicable not only for uh, healthcare, but also for agriculture, because just like humans, uh, crops or plants, they also need their health to be uh, monitored. Uh, uh, periodically so that we can increase the yield because food, uh, the agriculture is a, a great source of food for uh, people all over the world, not just for us, but also for the rural people as well. Uh, there is a basic need. Uh, so that's that, that, that connection is really helping. Uh, so that's what I'm, uh, I'm still working on with him after the falling walls. For our competition this year, who would you recommend to apply for it and also to just, you know, watch? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I would recommend uh, definitely the any kinds of uh, graduate students, even undergraduate students, uh, then postdocs who are doing uh, groundbreaking research because Falling Walls is not just about taking part in the competition like a regular pitch. It also gives a purpose, uh, like research purpose, really, uh, to be very honest, like, because until then, uh, I was really doing research. I, yeah, so it was good research, but falling was really uh, helped me to think more about the societal perspective, like what is the societal, what are the societal unmet needs that my research can solve, resolve. So this kind of um, societal uh, thinking from the societal perspective is what um, really uh, uh, can give a purpose to all kinds of researchers and not just looking from scientific, uh, because as a researcher engineer, we always think about the science, uh, not really uh, delve deeper into the societal needs. So that is something I also learned from Falling Walls, uh, like looking at people's perspective, uh, who are going to use my uh, device, uh, who, uh, what is the um, group of people who, whom my research is going to benefit? So that, that, that this kind of like longer term vision that really came from uh, Falling Walls. So uh, I would definitely recommend to all the researchers, um, all the students, uh, especially who really are looking forward to 
like uh, learning, uh, getting some vision about their research, long-term vision to participate in Falling Words. Thank you so much, Shawana. Thank you. Thank you for Dr. Tabasum for taking the time to interview. We are now moving on to the final segment from Ari Jakobovitz, Managing Director of All Africa at MISTI and fellow producer of MISTI Radio. In this piece, he talks about the effects of climate change on the city of Venice, Italy, along with the scientists leading the efforts to curb its impact. Can Venice survive another 1600 years? It's Venice's birthday. This year, the iconic Italian city of waterways turned 1,600 years old. Church bells mark the occasion. Venice is not the only city threatened by rising sea levels as a result of climate change, but its distinctive geography makes it uniquely threatened. Can this UNESCO World Heritage Site survive another 1,600 years? In this episode, I speak to MIT professors Paola Rizzoli and Andrew Whittle. Dr. Rizzoli was born and raised in Venice, Italy. She is a physical oceanographer. She builds complex mathematical models to understand how the ocean moves. Dr. Whittle is a civil engineer that models soil behavior to understand the performance of foundations and underground construction projects. Dr. Rizzoli and Dr. Whittle think a lot about protecting cities vulnerable to flooding. Both have worked on the novel Modulo Sperimentale Electromechanico, or Experimental Electromechanical Module, better known as MOSE. Just don't call it a seawall. It's actually not a seawall. Um, in, instead, what you have in Venice is an island in, in a lagoon, and the lagoon has a series of openings to the ocean. And the, the actual barrier that's being designed is essentially what you probably say minimally intrusive it doesn't you don't see it when it's not operative the actual barrier itself sits on the sea floor um, and when we've got a, an event which is coming along a, a high water event which is forecast um, these series of hollow steel gates are raised by buoyancy by injecting air into the gates uh, some hours ahead of the actual flood event and the gates come up to the surface, and there's a series of them. Each of the barriers is about the order of, of 20 gates per each of four openings. And um, they actually oscillate. The gates flap in the wave, wave action, but they effectively seal off the lagoon from the high tides, and the consequences, they, they protect the city from the flood damage, the direct flood damage. Um, and the idea is that they're minimally intrusive. Venice relies on the environmental health of the lagoon. So the idea is not to seal the lagoon off long-term, but only to seal it for the necessary tidal cycles. So one or perhaps two or maybe three tidal cycles where they're going to be affected. As Professor Whittle mentioned earlier, the city of Venice is actually an island in the Venetian lagoon. 
Separating the lagoon from the Adriatic Sea is the barrier island of Palestrina. And in case you haven't brushed up on your Italian geography lately, this is all not quite on Italy's boot. It's sort of on its calf. You cannot talk about Venice without talking about the lagoon because Venice and the lagoon are a unique entity. And they have been a unique entity for more than 1,000 years. So Venice and the lagoon exist, coexist, and can survive only coexisting together. The solution designed to protect Venice and its lagoon is one of a kind. Simply put, it's an engineering triumph that the world must study if it wishes to protect more cities from rising tides. This is a completely novel design. It's a piece of bespoke engineering, and it was really necessitated by the demands of the system. You know, they didn't want to interfere with tidal flows in and out of the lagoon regularly. They didn't want things that were visually intrusive on the city. Uh, so there were a whole series of constraints which were very unusual and relatively unique. Um, and I should say the activation of the gates, uh, the frequency of, of the closures, is also relatively unprecedented um, compared to existing barriers where you know, they're operated much more less frequently. Probably the, the closest similarity might be the Thames barrier in, in London um, in terms of frequency of operations. But the system here is completely unique. It's a completely unique piece of engineering. It's actually a remarkable piece of engineering. When Italy was slammed with COVID-19 cases in 2020, Venice's physical infrastructure was dealt somewhat of a respite. No tourists. Professor Rizzoli had just come back from Venice. I asked about her trip and how things were going there. Well, the scene is just going back to basically normal life because COVID-wise we are doing very well. Italy is all white. Uh, white means that uh, the restrictions have been completely removed, even though it is advisable still to keep the mask if you are inside, if you are many people. But basically, uh, the pandemia it seems to be disappearing. They have even closed uh, some COVID hospitals. Uh, they're vaccinating the teenagers. And people are really... Uh, uh, filling up Venice, and the the drawback may be that uh, in a few months we'll be back to the over-tourism we were before. I am not yet sure because I was hoping that the pandemia might have induced some moment of reflection for the authorities to find the compromise between the herds, unregulated herds, uh, uh, jumping really coming to Venice in millions every weekend and the emptiness of the city in these last two years. I do not know. We are not yet back to what it was before, but in one month uh, you can see that there is already a big number of tourism. In 2019, it is reported that Venice's 262,000 residents hosted a whopping 30 million tourists. Many depend on these visitors for their livelihoods. But the influx of visitors is taking its toll on the city's fragile ecosystem and infrastructure. Venice is only 160.1 square miles. That's about the size of Montgomery, Alabama, which has a population of 200,000. They cannot allow undiscriminated, uncontrollable tourism, uncontrollable, uncontrolled tourism. They cannot, because otherwise if we arrive 
at the situation we were before, in which there were times in which you really could not even walk in the narrow cars, in which they were regulated, the traffic was regulated by policemen both ways, like cars. Dr. Rizzoli pointed out that this wasn't Venice's first battle against the virus. Quarantine was invented in 1576 when the Lazzaretto, Lazzaretto is the place where they put the the people who are sick, the pest, the cholera, the, 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 uh, the whatever, and for 40 days they were isolated. So quarantine is a term invented by the Venetians. The quarantine comes from Venice, and the famous pestilence of the, the late 1500, I think 1576, after which the Church of Redemptore was erected. But there was another pestilence which was in the 1700, after which the Church of Salute was erected. So. Venice has survived many quarantine, many pestilences, um, including now the pandemia, the, uh, the COVID-19. The team building Mosa set up camp on Palestrina Island right by the construction site. Today, the campsite serves an educational purpose. It prepares future engineers, designers, and scientists for building infrastructure that protects our cities from rising sea levels. In 2016, on the 4th of November, there was the uh, 50th anniversary of the famous flood of November 4, 1966. I went to Venice on purpose, uh, because I was there, by the way, on the 4th of November, 1966. And I went to the consortium uh, where uh, Dr. Elena Zambardi, who is the responsible for the um, international public relationship of the consortium, organized a meeting between myself and Professor Laura Fregolent, who is a professor of architecture and urban planning at the, at the um, University of Architecture in Venice, UAB. And the three of us began sort of talking, and the idea came out of using the Palestrina site um, for a series of summer camps. I would define camp because it is not really a summer school. We live in the village, we live the, which was the, Andrew and I were there when the village was full of workers at the, the gates of Malamocco. There were 200 of them. And now when we went for the camp, it was empty. And the basic idea was not to let the richness of the scientific and engineering knowledge, the know-how which has led to this magnificent, unique piece of engineering, which required also years of study, and my life, uh, scientific life is an example with, uh, of the problems of Venice, subsidence, uh, high uh, floods, uh, storm surges over the Arctic Sea, not to let this richness of knowledge to go wasted to have a memory of this richness, uh, scientific and engineering connected with the necessities arising for the city of continuous mitigation measures, continuous adaptation measures, which involve not only the MOSE, but what are called the complementary works, which are works diffused in entire city, like for Palestrina raising the two walls on the two sides of the island to make a further protection. So this was the original idea for which we started the first summer camp, which was at the end of June 2017. To have a memory, to have an audience of young people um, combining two schools, one 
MIT, famous for science and technology. IUAV is arguably the best universal architecture of Louvre, Italy, and they're famous for urban planning, combining these two types of very different type of students and expertise, people, uh, to form something new, and we were successful. The overriding objective from an MIT perspective was to expose MIT students to the diverse challenges of sustainability and resilience and so on affecting Venice and to get them familiar with really one of the most, uh, how should we say, environmentally stressed in environments. You know, the city of Venice, it's lagoon. How do you protect it from the floods was the initial thinking. And then it expanded more to look at sustainability issues and resilience. So we've expanded our scope of thinking on these projects. We, we try and bring a broad sweep of MIT students. They're mainly uh, rising sophomores or rising juniors. They come from across MIT. And over the years we've run the camp, we've, we've typically had about 15 of those students going to Venice with the help of Misty Italy and the Europe office principally. Um, once they're there, we engage them essentially in a short project. The camp is about two weeks long. It's a residential camp. The objective is for them to have also a cultural experience working with Italian students from UAV, teaming up on team projects. We try and do a fair amount of planning of the projects beforehand, so we've thought through possible projects that will meet the overall theme. The campsite isn't exactly glamorous which Dr. Rizzoli thinks is important. In a sense, the primitiveness of the camp was one of the beauties. The head of my department, Prof. Van der Hist, who is a six, uh, a six, how much, six feet four, uh, came more, to more, see more us. More than that, Paola. Significantly okay, more than that. Okay, whatever. But in any case, he came to the camp twice and stayed there. But he could not fit in one of the small beds for the Italian workers. So uh, we took a picture of him with all the lower half of his legs popping out from the bed. And they had to make mattresses on the floor because otherwise he could not sleep in the small room. So, you know, these are episodes. And in a sense, the fact that this is a primitive environment adds to the... Uh, the closeness, the coziness, and makes people feel together because of professors, students, the, the mentors, the teachers, um, uh, the, the, we all live together. And, and it, is a, it is a camp. It is a lot of fun, but fun, which is obviously increased by the interest in different type of expertises and communicating and being together do community. So it has been a fantastic experience, I think, not only for the students, but for the, all of us. This is a beautifully designed solution. And I think Italy is often known for many of its beautiful designs, either in clothing or cars or architecture. So do you think this uh, construction is somehow connected to Italian culture in any particular way? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a construction which involves creativity, imagination, mm -hmm. uh, going out, uh, out of the box. This solution is... Uh, a product only of Italian engineers. 
only Italian engineers, only Italian, and in fact, the beauty of the solution is so unique because uh, Ita Italians are great individually as creators. So put them together, they form a, a, a dysfunctional society. But that's okay. That's okay. That's our that's our prerogative. It is our merit. It is our failure, if you want. But that's what we are, and this is part of. I, I'm expressing my opinion. So now Andrew will add from the point of view of a quite reasonable uh, uh, Englishman. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Paola. No, I, I, I was actually going to say every environment is different. I mean, I, I don't want to cast stones at what they did in New Orleans, but certainly a lot of decision-making <laughs> after... No, certainly a lot of decision-making after Katrina was conditioned by political imperative to act. And I, I, I don't think that's the best way that they could have made decisions necessarily, although I understand the urgency. For now, the Mosa is doing its part in protecting Venice and doing so in style. Skeptical residents can now worry a bit less. The Mose finally was rated very successfully last year in October, as Andrew was saying. Uh, uh, and the first time it was raised, all the Venetian, because it, it was no Mose, no Mose, it will never function, it will never, and blah, blah, blah. So it comes that there is a high water basically for an entire week. The first episode lasted only two days. The Mose were raised, all the people went to San Marco Square with the boots, and San Marco Square was dry. So it came out all over the, the new newspaper, oh, Venice is dry. Then what happened is that there was one week in which there were basically everyday high waters, and there was in the middle of the week a wrong prediction for which they did not predict the flood. So they lowered the Moses, and there was then the cry, why don't you raise the Moses? Why don't you raise the Moses? So before it was, it is, does not function. No Moses, no Moses. And then the cry was the opposite. So the population changes opinion very quickly and very rapidly. It is enough to show that the system works. Venice faces many challenges, but Professor Rizzoli says that she's an optimist by nature. Even with the myriad challenges Venice and the planet faces, Professor Rizzoli believes that yes, Venice will still be around in the year 3600. I certainly hope so too. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Se avessi come casa mia adesso che non ci sei più Vorrei quasi buttarmi via, tu porti il tuo cane giù Vai sempre a Santa Maria, la piazza che ci dice addio Il russo canta il sole mio, tu non sei il sole mio Il solito menù, che ci hanno fatto i filtri su come facevi tu Magari è solo un déjà vu, un déjà vu, un déjà vu che ho avuto quella sera Sole sale, 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 sale su, e a chi ci vuole male, male, male una macumba che mi frega a me, mi basta che rimani tu. Cielo, troppo falso che non c'era niente di più vero e pensavo di volare ma un attimo e cadevo giù uh. oggi il sole scioglie le suole di queste etro mai lasciato appeso ad un discorso in sospeso non ti vedo da quel giorno in quel fast food a vedo e mentre il sole sale 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 su e a chi ci vuole male, male, male una macumba Che mi frega a me, mi basta che rimani tu uh, uh, uh. E mentre il sole sale, 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 sale su E a chi ci vuole male, male, male una macumba Che mi frega a me, mi basta che rimani tu uh, uh, uh. E andavi fuori di testa Quella mezza tresca Questa fine non ci sarà più uno stare. E quando penso sia finita, eccola là che ricomincia. Quella te che ho conosciuta, adesso manco t'assomiglia. Passa un battito di ciglia per un attimo di buio che ti sfoga la realtà. E mentre il sole sale, 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 sale su. E a chi ci vuole male, male.